This week on Dave and Darm Demystify, we have Ron Shevlin of Cornerstone Advisors. And while Ron might describe himself as master of the snark tank, he is a sharp banking industry observer and has a lot to share on today's program about the perceived differences between banking in the UK and in the US. And on top of that, he'll take a hard look at the challenges facing US regional banks that seem to be caught in the middle between the big bank innovators and the nimble, nimble fintechs. And so without further ado, it's Dave and Darm and Ron. From the studios of Contrarian, new media in the UK and US, comes the Dave and Darm Demystify Show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to this week's edition of the Dave and Darm Demystify show. This week we've got a very special guest. It's Ron Shevlin. So Ron, could you give us a bit of background on yourself and tell us what you're up to? And then I think today we're going to talk about banking in the US and the UK and differences you see and we see in terms of what's going on. Absolutely. Before I get even started with an introduction, though, let me just say how honored I am to be on this revival podcast of the Greg and Dharma show. I have to say, I did not watch the show back in the 90s when you guys were on very much, but it's great to see you kind of back in the limelight a bit. I do have to say that, although I didn't watch the show, I seem to recall Dharma being a very attractive blonde-haired woman, so I'm not quite sure what's happened to Dharma over the past 20 years, but hey, listen, it's great to be on. I have no idea why you'd even ask somebody like me. I'm really more involved in banking and fintech, so I'm not sure what's going on in Hollywood there. But yeah, so my role and background is I've basically been a consultant for the past 30 years or so. I spent some time with some big consulting firms like KPMG and then got into the analyst world in the late 90s with Forrester Research. And I basically really have been an industry analyst since then. Spent some years with Forrester, then a smaller group here in the Boston area where I live called IT Group. And then five years ago, joined a company called Cornerstone Advisors to really start a research practice. They've been doing a lot of consulting in the mid-sized financial institution space for about 20 years now. A lot of focus on technology selection and strategy and business performance. And I came in to kind of do what I was doing at Forrester and ITAKE Group, write reports. The big difference being that Cornerstone doesn't sell subscriptions. We do everything one-off commissioned, and I'm working mostly with the tech vendors these days. I also started blogging about 14 years ago, I guess it is at this point, December of 2006, and after a number of years, moved my blog to thefinancialbrand.com. It's coming up on a little over two years now that I got a call from some guy at Forbes who said, hey, you want to be a Forbes contributor? I said, yeah, I want to be a Forbes contributor. And so I moved my blog, kind of renamed it the Fintech Snark Tank. The blog had been called Snarketing, 
And you guys have probably already figured out why it would be called the FinTech Snark Tank. You know, I write to that almost every week, and a lot of that is, you know, writing about the research and what's kind of going on. And, you know, it just gives me a good outlet to be a little more snarky than I can be in the published reports that the firms that commission the research want. So, yeah, you know, I've been involved now in banking and fintech for over 20 years, and, you know, really, it's great to see the uptake and interest in fintech that we've seen over the past few years. Fantastic. So today we thought we'd, as I mentioned up front, look at banking in the US and the UK. And I mean, obviously, we in the UK believe that we lead the world in terms of fintech, and especially open banking. So I was kind of keen to get your perspective from the other side of the pond in terms of that as a statement. But also, you know, I guess my eyes have slowly been open to what's going on in the US and sort of, you know, okay, the lead that the UK once had maybe is sort of slipping away. But yeah, as I say, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts. Yeah, I don't know that necessarily it matters who's leading on fintech. I would say that if I were on your side of the pond, I wouldn't be bragging about leading in open banking. I don't know that that's anything to be bragging about. But here's the thing and the parallels. First of all, you have to remember that the banking structure, the industry structure in the U.S. is very different than it is pretty much anywhere else in the world. We have thousands of financial institutions in this country that range from, you know, fairly small institutions with even, you know, less than $100 million in assets to these huge mega banks like Chase and the B of A with over $2 trillion in assets. And then you've got everything in between. And I don't think the UK is as sort of broad a range and certainly not in terms of number. So that drives a lot of differences, you know, in terms of how the industry acts and what you see here. But here's the thing I would give the credit to the UK for in terms of leading around. And it's not about the industry or the technology development. It's about the consumer behavior. You know, we've had neobanks, challenger banks, whatever you want to call them. I use those terms interchangeably. I'm not trying to distinguish, you know, between one and the other when I use that term. Although the term digital bank might be different because I do think of the challenger banks as a Chime, Varro, Aspiration here, you know, Monzo and so forth, Revolut in the UK and Europe. But there are digital banks here in the U.S. that are spun off or owned by traditional banks. So I think there is a little bit of a difference there. So where I think the U.K. has led is you guys have seen faster adoption of the neobank challenger banks than we have in the U.S. You know, the first ones in the U.S. were really simple and moving back in, I guess it's about 2010 or so when they really came out. And it took a long time for any real adoption. Now, you can go back and say, well, you know, gee, Chime has been claiming millions of customers for the past few years. Those numbers are kind of all over the map. But, you know, I do a lot of consumer research throughout the year. And last year will really mark when we look back on it, not just, you know, because of the pandemic for sure, but will really mark a transition period in banking from a fintech perspective for the U.S. I conducted a consumer study in January of last year, pre-pandemic. Nobody knew what was coming up in the next couple months. And routinely, as I do often, I ask consumers a couple things like, who do you consider to be your primary bank? And do you have an account with any of these digital neobank challenger banks, whatever? Back in January of last year, only about 3% of Americans 
considered a challenger bank to be their primary bank or their primary checking account. When I conducted another survey, just really mid-December, that number had jumped to 11%. Now, again, we're not talking huge numbers here, but from a growth perspective. More importantly, the Gen Zers and Millennials, the 21 to 40-year-olds, they jumped from about 4% to 15% throughout the course of the year. I've been calling that the challenger bank insurgency of 2020 for the U.S. and this is the important shift. There's another thing you guys could tell me how different or similar this might be between the U.S. and the U.K. is that at this point in the U.S., a little over a third of American adults have more than one checking account. You know, it used to be we had one checking account. It was our primary account. If we had another one, it was probably because, you know, we got a mortgage and they said, hey, we'll give you a better rate if you open up a checking account. Well, so we said, sure, we put 50 bucks in, let it sit there for a while until we could pull it out and close out the account. Today's behavior is very different. People are opening up multiple checking accounts because they want very specific features. Can I give you guys a quick example of this? You guys probably know um, Chris Gledhill in the UK. So about a month or two ago, Chris tweeted that Revolut was looking for a banking license in California and was wondering, you know, why California for state banking license? And I, typically me, snarkily, jokingly said, well, maybe that's because the one person who responded to my survey who said that they had a Revolut account lives in California, which is actually a true story. I had one respondent out of 3,000 people who said they had a Revolut account, and the guy did live in California. But I got a message back from a community bank executive, fairly large community bank, over $30 billion in assets, and she said, I have a Revolut account. And I jumped, I said, hey, does your boss know that you're banking with a bank that's not your own bank? And she said, ah, ha, ha, it's a secondary account. They do international money transfer so good. And there it is, guys. That's the heart of the behavior today. People have some one thing that they want to get done that their primary bank isn't good at. They don't leave the bank. They just open up a new account somewhere else. It's easy to move the money in between these accounts these days. So you open up multiple accounts so you can get that one feature that you like. And, you know, that is both a blessing and curse for a lot of these challenger banks, because how do you monetize that when, you know, you keep advertising no fees, we're not going to hit you any fees, and people are only using you for this one feature. But from a consumer perspective, it's absolutely wonderful. It's easy money movement between accounts. It's free. It's easy. It's relatively fast. Yes, it's not necessarily real time yet here in the U.S., that's okay. Most people don't care about that just yet. You know, they care about that for paying bills and maybe for doing P2P transfers, but not when you just need to regularly you know, move money between accounts to do what you want to do. And so that's what's kind of really happening in the U.S. We're seeing that challenger bank insurgency. And even more importantly, it's that the presence and adoption of multiple checking accounts. And according to the research that I've just done, you know, as I said, 11% of consumers consider a challenger bank or digital bank to be their primary account. But among secondary accounts, that percentage jumps to almost 20%. And even among people who have three accounts, the digital banks and challenger banks have 30% market share. That's what's really changing in the US. You guys can tell me what's kind of happening in the UK. I think the same has been happening in the UK for quite some time. And certainly with the challenges, 
you know, people have used it as their secondary account. Typically, you know, the behavior has been like, I'll chuck over a few hundred pounds at the beginning of the month and I'll use that to tap, 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 pay my way through lunches, beers and going out, right? And so it hasn't been the prime account that they've shifted. Now, the behavior in millennials is slightly different. Some people use it as their prime account, but it's a prime account where they're living at home and they don't have any other bills and mortgages, etc. right? So it's a slightly different thing. But I'd also say there are some other behaviors I'm starting to see from that young gen. For example, my son, I asked him about, do you have a credit card? No, I don't have a credit card. Why would I want a credit card, Dad? Because, you know, it's spending money that I don't have. And then I have to worry about whether I've got enough to pay the credit card bill off or get hit with some heavy charges. No, thank you. I just prefer my Monzo card, right? And it's a totally different mentality. Definitely, because I've done a bit of research as well. And what you see is people using these accounts for sort of month by month transactional. Like they'll put money in as Darmish describes it, and then they'll use that as their spending money for the month. But it's not their sort of primary relationship. But it's sort of fascinating because it sort of shows that the people's views on money is kind of changed very much or changed a lot going back a few years. What we also see is that these challenger banks become quite disposable. So, you know, the number of people I've talked to who you say, well, what relationships have you got with banks? And they'll show you a multitude of cards that they've got in their wallets. When you say, well, what do you use these for? Half of them, they've kind of forgotten. One of the things which I find fascinating about Revolut is I loved Revolut because it was so easy to do money transfers. As it become more complicated, to your point, you know, I'm beginning to say, well, actually, maybe I'll go and shop around and find something else, which is kind of easier. So that behavior, I think, is something that we kind of see very much here as well. We spent a bit of time chatting to people like Unify Money out of San Francisco, and it's sort of interesting to see that you've got this seam of fintechs who are taking the idea of an account and then layering on top of it sort of robo-investment and quick access to things like crypto. And that seems to be very different from what we're seeing in the UK at the moment as well. Well, let's unpack that a bit, because there's two things I think you raised the point around. Is One is sort of a layering of additional products, but then specifically the crypto piece. There's about close to 15% of Americans who say that they own some sort of cryptocurrency these days. And of course, most of it is for you know speculative investing. It's not for payment stuff. But half of them do say that they have used crypto to make retail purchases. Based on that, I estimated at about $30 billion last year here in the U.S. of people using that. Now, in the scheme of things, that is you know a rounding error of $30 billion on a $5 trillion retail spend. But, you know, the smart firms like PayPal and now Coinbase are saying, let's not just make this something where it's just speculative. Let's people use it. Let's people do something with it. It completely changes your whole approach to figuring out how to make a payment, right? I mean, you bought a Bitcoin at 20K and it's at 30K. You know, you can literally cash it out and then use it to spend something instead of having to reinvest it somewhere. So it really changes the whole way consumers think about payments. But the other aspect, Dave, that I think you were bringing up was, you know, really about the challenger banks kind of hitting the wall with their business model and realizing you got to kind of expand out a bit. What troubles me is that in the world of banking, interest payments, your lending is what drives profitability. There's just no question about it. 
But most of the challenger banks, at least here in the U.S., that have had any level of success has generally had success attracting low to middle income consumers who are looking to find accounts where they don't have to get hit with overdraft over time. Challenge is these are not your best lending candidates. So how are you going to make money? And so I think there's a lot of products and services other than lending that these fintechs can offer, you know, things like subscription management services, bill negotiation services, data breach protection, and even things like cell phone damage protection, identity theft protection. The list goes on and on. And I've done research over the past couple of years and can find year over year, there are a lot of consumers who have those services today. They pay for those services today. They pay for them directly. That's not just through like, you know, their employer. And they say they are very open to getting those services services from their banker credit union. Now, you go to the banks and credit unions and say, are you interested in providing these kinds of services? Unfortunately, the vast majority say no. But here's the huge opportunity for the fintechs because they've basically grown up with an architecture that enables these types of services to be more easily integrated into those platforms. So it's not a huge you know, expense and cost or time frame to get these things up and running. They need to be out there with, you know, hey, we'll offer you this, we'll offer you that, and not for free, but charge people for it. They're willing to pay for things that they perceive they get value from. So the opportunity to kind of create a whole new set of services that the banks aren't even looking at, I think is a big opportunity for a lot of these challenger banks. We're almost following a model that we've seen with Uber and other hell-riding services, right? My kids have got like three different apps that they use depending on which one sent them an offer for this month. Pre-pandemic, they were juggling between three apps and really the decision was where do I get the most value? And that's exactly what you're saying. Consolidate some of this sharing of the value with the customer, then it brings a much more compelling service to them, I think. Darren, you'll know this, Dave, you too, because... You talk to the banks, and I don't care if we're talking U.S. or U.K. banks, there is a mentality that still lives on in the traditional bank that they want to own the relationship. That is so key to them. And they don't get that you're already too late. Amazon owns the relationship. If you're an Uber driver, Uber owns your relationship. You're on that Uber driver app the whole time that you are driving around. You're not going to switch out of things to go to your bank app. You just want the stuff that's important to come up in the context of where you are today. You know, if you're a heavy Facebook user, you're on Facebook. You know what I mean? And so part of the challenge here is not technological. Part of the challenge is really attitudinal. You know, I hate to say it, it's, it's generational. Listen, I remember back in the mid to late 80s, I was just a little kid back then, of course. But, you know, when PCs first came around, you had a lot of executives and a lot of businesses who said, I'm not touching a PC. Secretaries type. I don't type. It was funny, I was working on a consulting project for a very large company, not in financial services, and IT was asking us, how can we get our CEO to start using a PC? And somebody on my team, and I wish I could take credit for this one because it was one of the most brilliant ideas I'd ever heard in consulting, he said, give PCs to the guy's grandkids because then they'll want to email with grandpa. There was no video chat and Zoom or anything like that back then. But, you know, he said, hey, they'll want to email with grandpa and grandpa will start using it to email. And it worked. 
then the guy starts understanding what the power of the PC is. But, you know, it was the same sort of attitude and mentality change. And we need that in banking now. So when we start to see the Gen Xers who are, you know, still just in their early 50s, really start taking over the leadership positions and boomers, you know, we've got to figure out a way to let them retire because that's who's maintaining this old mentality about control and retaining the relationship kind of thing. We've talked about big banks, you know, in the UK, obviously, we have the high street banks, you've got the large banks in the US. What sort of things are you seeing that you think are moves in the right direction to what you're alluding to in terms of that control? So in the conversations I'm having, you can see the penny starting to drop around some of this stuff. But there's a slight rabbit in the headlights moment where because of the pandemic, there's costs and all these other bits and pieces. People are sort of wondering about what do we do and how do we move on from this? But there is a dawning realisation that the future really is digital and that has to be kind of front and centre. So I was just interested in your views on some of the things going on and maybe some predictions in terms of what we might see coming out of the bigger banks themselves. Yeah, you know, one of the biggest fallacies and misconceptions that a lot of folks have, and I hear this all the time from the mid-sized banks and credit unions, is they think, oh yeah, the big organizations, they're slow to move, slow to make decisions. But when you actually look at what's kind of going on, you realize it's still the mid-sized institutions that haven't done diddly squat compared to, you know, what Bank of America, JP Morgan, Chase, and Wells and Capital One have done, and especially Chase. I don't know that their mobile banking platform is that great, but give you another good story here. One of my colleagues uh, came in one day and said, my daughter is so liberal, Bernie Sanders isn't left wing enough for her. And he says, you know, I say that because if there's anybody out there that you thought would be a credit union member, it'd be her. But she banks with Chase. And when I asked her why, she said, mobile banking tools, Dad, they got the best ones. Mid-sized institutions are still caught up in this fallacy that people want to talk to people. Nah, they don't. Nobody wants to talk to people. Only when we have a problem do we want to talk to a person. Every time out, we don't want to talk to anybody. We just want the job done. And the big banks have done a much better job of getting mobile tools out there. But even more important to your point, Dave, is that the larger banks like Chase and B of A and Wells in particular, you know, have done a better job of building the ecosystems that need to be built out there. It's Goldman Sachs through its Marcus division that's partnering with Amazon to do the small business loans. They're the ones, Chase, partnerships with Google to do, you know, really cool stuff from a digital marketing perspective. To some extent, many of the smaller institutions just don't have the leverage to go do that. And I know that everyone's making a lot of hay out of the comment that Jamie Dimon made a couple weeks ago that everybody, you know, ought to be really freaking scared of the fintechs. And I would bet you anything he's not scared in the least because I'd heard a story that, you know, a couple years ago in some private meeting, he was asked, you know, are you worried about the fintechs? And he said, not really. If they get big enough to be threatening, I'll just buy them. And that's what Visa tried to do with Plaid, right? It wasn't about creating open banking. We don't have open banking here in the U.S. And we don't really want open banking here in the U.S. I don't think even consumers understand what this means to have the kind of open banking that's been regulated there. You know, that's, Dave, I think where the big banks' heads are at. They understand scale much better 
than the mid-sized institutions do. And for better or worse, the mid-sized institutions are hamstrung somewhat by their vendors and the vendor architectures that they've got. And that's not new news to anybody and certainly not new news to the financial institutions. And I actually think, and I know, Dom, you've written a lot about this too and are on top of this. This, to me, is one of the more exciting areas in terms of new digital platforms, but also the opportunity for what I would think of as core integration platforms, tools that can sit on top of these systems and enable better integration and create a migration path for those institutions that kind of want to get off the old legacy cores. I mean, I loved your point around the larger institutions actually starting to build the ecosystem, which they kind of need. They can see into the future. And I think that's the right thing to be doing is rather than rushing to the end is very mindfully building up that ecosystem. I guess they're playing the long game, but I think your point around scale is a very, very good one. Certainly, I would challenge a lot of the banks in the UK to really think about that scale and how to use that scale in terms of actually delivering better customer experiences. But, you know, I think it's a really, really well-made point. JP Morgan have announced that they're opening up a UK banking division here as well, which I think feels like a real vote of confidence in the UK, which is something we desperately need at this moment in time. I think we're just sick and tired of seeing all these other international banks move into the US. And so Diamond said, screw it, let's just go to the UK, take it over there and put everybody else out of business. It's just, you know, American supremacy mentality. You know, we're tired of like all the Canadian banks coming in, Spanish banks coming in. I'm joking, of course, you know. I have to make sure you understood that. Make sure <laughs> we're running out of time, Ron, but before we go, I'm really keen to understand, is there a future for the small banks and even the mid-sized ones? Again, Dave talks about the long game. You do have to look at this at a longer period of time. And what happens in almost every industry, and especially in banking, there are these ebbs and flows of consolidation where, you know, the big get bigger. And then what happens is new players come in who take more of a niche strategy approach and tend to dismantle the oligarchies in the industry, but then go through another round of consolidation. So we have been, at least in the U.S., over the past 15, 20 years, rapid consolidation as the big get really bigger. What do the challenger banks represent are those that are chipping away, going after niches, low middle income consumers for sure. But you know what? Here's what I find really interesting and exciting about the challenger bank movement is that it's not all about just going after low middle income consumers. There are so many that are emerging that go after specific niches, affinities of the market. You know, you've got Joust going after gig workers. You've got a firm I'm looking forward to talking to in the next couple of weeks called Panacea Financial that serves doctors. So it certainly isn't low middle income consumers. A challenger bank out of Kansas City called Bank Boulevard that caters to black and African-American consumers. It's all about finding the niches. So number one, I think there will always be an opportunity for smaller companies, whether it's fintech or bank, there's always going to be opportunities to find the niches and find those that are underserved, not because they have low income, underserved because they have unique needs. The Uber drivers are a great example and why Uber has such a great opportunity to serve that segment because they certainly are underserved by traditional banks. And you know what? They're underserved by the fintechs as well. The big challenge, though, is going to be for community banks who define their market as geographic communities. Because what is that geographic community made up of? Gig workers, doctors, disabled people, blacks and Americans who are all getting 
picked apart by the more nimble and more broadly geographic focused startups. So we're not seeing the death of community banking or death of small banks. We're seeing the death of geography as the defining construct of community. That's the big challenge that a lot of mid-sized and smaller institutions are going to have to wrestle with. Fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, look, we could go on for hours, but it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. And I'd like to thank you for your time and I love your views and love your writing. So keep asking. Thanks so much, Ron. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Don Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.